2005, I was a waiter. People were laughing my face. In 2007, I was honest to God, co-instructing a course on social entrepreneurship at Yale. And there was no way when I was that 30-year-old getting laughed in my face that I knew that in a scant two years, I'd be guest lecturing at a top three university in the world on how to change the damn world. Welcome to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores exceptional career success stories, inspiring and insightful personal brand journeys that answer the question, are you coffee or are you Starbucks? Fascinating conversations with leaders about their career breakthroughs from entertainment, tech, media, and more. You'll learn how they've turned up the volume on their brand to unlock success. Firsthand, uncensored, and real, as told by people who've been there and plenty of inspiration and practical tools to help you lead with your brand every day as you drive towards your next career breakthrough. And now, here's your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Hey everybody, Jason Patria here, and you are listening to the Lead With Your Brand podcast, which is the podcast for folks just like you who are looking to turn up the volume, show your value, and lead with your brand to your next career breakthrough. Well, I am thrilled about today's guest. It is an old college buddy of mine, Charles Vogel, who is an advisor, speaker, and author of the book, Building Brand Communities. But before we get to Charles, I want to talk a a little bit about brand experience because I have been watching the Tokyo Olympics like crazy. I have been watching on TV. I have been getting up at five o'clock in the morning and watching it streaming because I love the Olympics. And here's why I love the Olympics because when I was 11 years old, the Olympics came to my hometown of Los Angeles for LA 1984. And let me tell you, it was a life-changing experience for me. You know, as an L.A. kid growing up right in the heart of Hollywood, the L.A. 84 Games was a true spectacular. It was an amazing experience that was all about a show. And it wasn't just about the sports games. It was really that L.A. doubled down to do an Olympics that would change the modern Olympics. Because before Los Angeles, we had had several Olympics that were financial failures. They had fallen apart. They had not even finished stadiums. And even worse, some of them had been hit with terrorist attacks. But LA decided that they were going to change the game and they were going to change the face of the brand of Los Angeles as an international city. Now, I will tell you as a kid, what I remember the first thing was watching the Olympic relay torch come past my home and actually getting a picture holding that torch. And I was instantly in love because I could see the crowd. I could see the runners. I even talked to one of the women who carried the torch and I knew that this was something that was for me. And then when the Olympics launched all across the city, there was all sorts of fabulous postmodern temporary structures that went up. There was uh, canary gold and orange and magenta and teal that said everything about modern and the 80s and Los Angeles. And when my parents took me down to the Olympic Village, I started pin trading and meeting everyone in front of the Los Angeles Coliseum. Because I realized right then and there 
that it's not just about a logo or a mascot or even a tagline. And certainly I loved the moving stars and Sam the Eagle and the Olympic rings, but a brand is truly about creating an experience. And it made me realize that I needed to create an experience when people interacted with me. So that's what I want to challenge you to think about as you watch the end of the Olympics. What is the experience that you are creating for people who interact with you? What are those show-stopping moments? What are those consistent, unifying themes that let everybody know wherever they interact with you that you are a unique individual that is adding value? What are those things that you can turn up the volume because you're always on a world stage? Well, let's get to our super exciting guest today. It is Charles Vogel, who is a strategy advisor to Google's global health and performance programs and a founding member of the Google Vitality Lab, which works to innovate healing in our era. His work is used to advise and develop leadership and programs worldwide within organizations including Airbnb, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitch, Amazon, and even the U.S. Army. And his latest book, Building Brand Communities, was awarded an Axiom Business Book Gold Medal. We'll be back in just a few moments with Charles Vogel. For over 25 years, Jason has coached, trained, and developed thousands of leaders and executives, helping them achieve their next career breakthrough. He's a featured speaker at global conferences and companies to help everyone bring their best authentic self to work, show their value, and lead with their brand every day. Get more tips and tools at leadwithyourbrand.com. And we are back. I am here with Charles Vogel, advisor, speaker, and author. Charles, what is going on today? Well, I'm delighted to be here, Jason, and I hope you teach me way more than I teach you today. Uh, well, I don't know if that's possible because you are one of the smartest guys that I know. You need to get out more, Jason. I've been saying it for years. <laughs> Uh, well, Charles, let's dive right in. So I, I want to know from you, because you do so many cool things, when you first meet someone, how do you even explain what you do and who you are? That's a fantastic question, because it's difficult for me, Jason. Uh, what I tell people, and you're going to coach me to make this better. When I meet people, I tell them, well, right now, I'm best known as an author. I write books. And then along with that, I speak on the stuff I write books about, and then I advise some organizations on what I'm writing about. Very cool. And so tell me a little bit about your current book, Building Brand Communities. Right now, Jason, the bulk of my work has to do with teaching people in a leadership role, be that formal or informal, how to bring people together around shared values and shared purpose. And we call that community. And you may already know that we're living in the loneliest era of American history. So if organizations want to succeed, bringing people together that they care about, be that internally the organization or outside people they're organizing, understanding how to do that is critically important. 
Yeah. And so I know that this book is really a culmination of so many experiences that you've had. So, Charles, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because you have such an interesting career. And it feels like as an observer, you've been someone that's always been looking at what's the intersection of your passion as well as driving purpose in the work that you've done. I mean, you've been in the Peace Corps. You've been a filmmaker. You're now an author and an advisor. When you look back over your career, what have been some of the biggest career breakthrough moments for you? Well, Jason, let me start by saying that when I was 30 years old, I was waiting tables in New York City, and there was this conversation I got used to hearing where these people on the Upper West Side in this restaurant I was waiting tables at would ask me if I was an actor. And I would say, no, I'm a filmmaker. And I would use the present tense because indeed, when I wasn't waiting tables, I was in an edit room working on a film. Then these people would laugh out loud. And I think they laughed out loud because they were playing with that joke that people who are waiting tables in New York think they're artists. So they would ask if I'm an actor. And I said, no, but I said I was a filmmaker. And then they laughed because clearly I wasn't actually making a film. I was taking their drink order. So I must be deluded. And mm. they were wrong. There were many servers in that restaurant. And virtually all of us had some artistic commitment we were working on. And to fund that, we waited tables. You may have heard of that pattern being a New York waiter while you work on an artistic project. Yeah. And with some irony, that project that I was working on that people would literally laugh in my face when I said, honestly, I was a filmmaker would go on to win a number of uh, fancy awards that people respect. And I specifically remember at the premiere of that film in Europe, that film was called New Year Baby. And on its premiere, it won the Amnesty International Movies That Matter Award. And that was maybe the most prestigious international human rights award the film could win. It was funded by PBS. So literally, Jason, in one night, I went from a guy who was waiting tables getting laughed in the face <laughs> to being an international human rights award-winning PBS filmmaker. Literally, in the, in the perspective of the world, overnight. Yeah. You know that to get to that <laughs> one night, I had to spend over 10 years learning things and taking risks and waiting tables so that I could go do things that people couldn't see until they could see them. And so when you ask that question, you know, this memory comes to mind of literally standing on stage and being told that my work deserves international attention. And then, of course, what happened after the night, which didn't happen the night before, was film festivals around the world wanted us to visit them because we were... International Human Rights Award-winning PBS filmmakers. Yeah. And so that's a turning point, but I'm glad that we have this context to share about it because anybody's listening to us, I want them to understand it's an entirely arbitrary moment that that night could have happened the next month, it could happen the next year, it could happen in the next film. The rules are the same. Mm -hmm. I had to do the preparation. I had to go focus on what I thought was important and do it the best that I could until someday, in this case, this was over 30 years old, after yeah. literally years of waiting tables, that someone said, wow, look how successful you are, and you're at an international level. So how did you transition from being a filmmaker to really being an advisor and an author and a speaker in the work that you do today with huge corporations? Right. Well, we'll break it down into, into three steps. Yeah. The first is, I had to acknowledge that my work working on human rights in Africa, making a film about genocide survivors with PBS support. And then I was a labor organizer in New York City, which you know about. Yeah. Um, that was really all spiritually inspired. It, it was about me committing myself in service at some level informed by a spiritual tradition. And uh, consistent with that, this 
after acknowledging that this journey I'm on really is about service, in my case, explicitly inspired by spiritual heroes of mine, um, I went to school and I got a credential. And of course, you know, I went and got a divinity degree. Um, I spent seven years in graduate school as opposed to just three or four. And I <laughs> used that time to study just because of the nature of my grad school. I was able to study in the law school, the business school, and the religion department, and then the divinity school, and really get new perspectives on the world as opposed to just learning the language of one field. Yeah. And I'd, and because I'd done that, because of the experience I had before going to grad school of going around the world as a labor organizer and genocide filmmaker, um, I was invited to guest lecture in these departments. And by doing that, I started building my chops as someone sharing a different perspective and sharing the language of people who are not yet as far as I had been on those endeavors, getting my chops, if you will. Got out of grad school, and um, this is the third step. So the first step is acknowledging this is a spiritual journey and not strategizing using some playbook someone gave me. The second one is I went and got a credential. And the credential was important because then people can see I did that. But of course, the credential was just, again, an arbitrary way of acknowledging, oh, you put in literally years to read the books and have the conversations. And then the third step is um, I wrote a book. Uh, I was working with a mentor and we were talking about what I was going to do next. I had no idea what to do with my life. And he encouraged me at the time to be uh, an advisor, executive coach. And I thought, well, all right, we'll try that. And the entrance fee to that at the level that I wanted to work at was to have a published book. So I went and I wrote a book. It turns out I wrote two. That's another story. I'll tell you if you ask me. And then the book came out. Now there was a way for other people who weren't my friends and who had sat down for hours to re realize what I had to say, the perspective I had, what I could assess was a pain in our time that in the case of my work, we could reinterpret and apply very time-tested ideas to apply the current pain. And once that was added, it didn't happen overnight. And there was a lot of flying around the country and speaking for free. But because those three steps were in place, that then led to the phone calls, the invitations that invited me to share conversations with people with a lot of influence. Yeah. And so I know I love how you make it sound easy. Like, oh, I just wrote a book. Yeah. Every 20 <laughs> years, just do this and boom. <laughs> what, what went into writing that book that you thought was both something that was valuable and something that was going to change the world and change people's perspective, but also something you thought people would actually buy? That's a great question. A great multi-level question. So first of all, I didn't know if anybody would read it. I didn't know <laughs> if it would change the world. And I didn't know if anybody would buy it. And the reason I want to be really clear about that is because it's easy for me to claim I knew what I was doing and easy for people to assume I knew what I was doing. And I certainly didn't. And I came from the film world where most films go nowhere. And um, most appeals for funding to make a film go nowhere. And that's just how it works. And if you don't like it, don't do that. And I think at some level, that's true about writing books. Most book proposals go nowhere. Most books when written go nowhere. Most people who call themselves an author don't have that many people listening to them. Maybe I got lucky. I've, certainly luck is involved. But I think in retrospect, one of the things that I happen to get right is that I was able to touch on a pain, in this case, the loneliness of our time and the desperation for people in both formal and informal leadership roles to want to do something about it. And 
I touched on that. And then because I came from the film world, I thought linearly. And my books are written with a clear arc. And I see other thought leadership books, and they do two things more often than anything else. One is the author rambles about how great they are for <laughs> dozens of pages. And they frame it as, let me tell you about this fun story of my formation. And those can be great, but a book it does not make. Yeah. A, a book like I'm writing does not make. And, or the second thing they do is they compile what really are a series of blogs, stack them next to each other, and then call them a book on the subject. And that they are not fundamentally bad, but if there's someone as smart as you are, Jason, and you've spent more than 20 years in your field now, am I right? Maybe 30. Okay. More than 20 years. I'm not wrong. And you talk to people who are literally as expert in your field as everybody in the world. Am I right about that? Yep. If I'm going to give you anything that's actually going to enrich you, that's going to make you better at at, at what you do now after 30 years of practice and seeing all the mistakes everybody else make, it's not going to come in 800 words. Yeah. Because I'm taking my readers on a journey, I think that's a big reason why the caliber of my readers take it seriously and are adopting it. Absolutely. So fun question for you. What did you want to do when you were a little kid? When you wanted to grow up, what did you want to do? It was one thing, Jason. I remember when I watched the credits of a film called The Mission. Yeah. I remember sitting in my seat and feeling stunned. Mm. And I remember I didn't want to leave the theater because I was afraid that if I walked out those doors, the feeling I had would go away and would never come back. And from that day, golly, I was 12. Yeah. I uh, knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. And in fact, that's where we met. I went to USC because I was told that if you want to be a filmmaker, the best school in the world is USC. And guess where I went? <laughs> right? No accident. Good old Trojans, right? And later I would find out that I, what I mistook for wanting to be a filmmaker was really about inspiring other people to create a brighter future. Mm. The film of the mission is about, in this case, priests in that story, committed by faith, committing uh, their entire lives and their own health to helping a tribe, in this case, in South America, become safer from the imperial forces that are coming to take their land. And I was not yet mature enough to see an archetypal level what I was responding to. I was responding to someone who recognized the world is broken, their people are unsafe. I'm inspired by something bigger than me. I'm going to commit everything I have to help. And even if I fail, it's worth the commitment. And the filmmaker part was about sharing that story, sharing this archetype enough to inspire other people. And I was inspired at 12 years old. And so while I have been a filmmaker, and I think I've achieved that at some level, I realized that the calling, the inspiration is much bigger than that. And so while I want to be a filmmaker, became a filmmaker, what I'm doing now is an extension of that. The writing I do, the speaking I do, the discussions that I have with folks like you are an extension of sharing a perspective in the world that inspires so that when we leave the conversation, we can create a richer, safer, more just world than the one we're in now. Yeah. And what was that moment or where along your journey did you realize, oh, it's not just being about a filmmaker. It's not just about about directing that it was more than that. You didn't recognize it when you were 12, but where along that path yeah. did you recognize it? So briefly, I worked in Hollywood after undergraduate. For listeners who don't know, I'm Asian American. It would still be another 20 years before the hashtag Hollywood so white would be a thing. Yeah. And Without sharing who I was working with, I witnessed who was successful in the realms I was working in and figured out I didn't want to be like them. 
And I didn't want to succeed in a place where I had to be like them to succeed. Yeah. And I didn't have the words then. I can now articulate that it was a selfish, self-aggrandizing, hedonic culture that I was exposed to. I didn't want to live the next 20 years of my life succeeding in a hedonic, self-aggrandizing, hedonic culture. And uh, that inspired fulfilling a lifelong passion to also serve in the Peace Corps, which explicitly is not about self-aggrandizement. You know, <laughs> it's in fact, like I went opposite, up, right? Yeah, I had to learn a new language. I had to learn to live on new food. I had to go to a place where I was so culturally inept that I was literally a laughingstock. And when I got there, it was, of course, extremely humbling because however strong I thought I was or smart or resilient, uh, living with African, in this case, Zambian families in the bush and seeing the strength they had to be subsistence farmers, to see the human rights abuses that they had to um, have the resilience to live through, to um, find the emotional strength to deal with the level of death going on in the midst of an AIDS epidemic, taught me how weak I was in a fantastic way. I didn't have to confuse myself with someone who was strong enough to take on the world and solve it. And in fact, I was so weak that I was largely, or so I thought, unsuccessful in pretty much everything I tried there as far as serving. Really what I got was an education from my villagers who loved me and I came to love. When I reflect on the failure, and I then spoke to mentors, what came up was I was working in my 20s on what I now call a superman strategy where mm-hmm. I wanted to be good at everything, mm-hmm. right? the speaking and the traveling and the finance and whatever. And guess what? Um, that strategy doesn't work. It works great up until it doesn't. It doesn't work great as soon as we're <laughs> at a really challenging place. Right. And so it was when I started making the film, New Year Baby, and there was no way I could be good at everything, that that's when I had to learn to bring people together around shared values and purpose who had different skills uh, for this success at an international level. And now we call that community building. Yeah. And I call that community building because I didn't have the resources to create a transactional relationship to mm-hmm. say, Hey, I will pay you or give you or promise you these material things. If you work with me, all I had was, look, we have this big vision of telling the story about a family surviving a genocide, becoming American and the power of healing and the power that comes from telling the truth that's hidden to heal longstanding wounds. Do you want to join us? And of course, hundreds of people over years said yes. And that's how the film got made. And that was the crucible where I had to grow from being someone who's told, okay, you're smart, you're hardworking, and you're driven. You're going to be great to, I'm clearly not strong enough. I'm never going to know enough. And I definitely can't do this on my own. Mm. What skills do I need to get the kind of success that I aspire to? And now, so that was in my late 20s then, and I'm now in my late 40s, now I can speak about bringing people together around shared values and purpose. Wow. What an interesting and amazing journey. So talk to me a little bit about your professional brand. You know, how, how do people observe you? So as a filmmaker, as an organizer, right, as an author, a speaker, even I'm going to say an inspirer, how do you describe your brand? What, what is it that people are, are getting when they work with Charles? So I don't usually describe my brand, Jason. So if, <laughs> you know, in this conversation, you describe it and you have better words than I have, I'm going to take them from you. <laughs> When I've talked to my team about what are we trying to communicate to people who may want to work with me, what we're communicating in materials we're sending out and when I'm speaking is my work 
is rooted in very, very old ideas. Mm. And in as much as I'm bringing any value, I like to think of it that I'm simply distilling and translating very old ideas so that they can be embraced and used by contemporary leadership. I'll say that differently by saying, I like to think nothing I'm writing about is new. I might be wrong, but that's what I think about it. And so there's no fad. And if you want a fad, you got to find somebody else. I'm differentiated from others because I'm uninterested in helping anybody exploit from a group or a list. If what you really want is more sales, logons, views, and posts, I'm not the guy from you. Yeah. And just recently, I've been reflecting on, well, then who does reach out to me? And, I, and you know, Jason, that I'm, I've been working with Google for a couple of years now. And I've uh, worked with some military people who are worried about the health of uh, our forces. And recently, I've been contacted by very prominent philanthropists that work at international level. And in each case, all of these leaders have a group of people at Google. It's innovators envisioning the future of Google, not simply in just how to get more revenue, but how does Google make an impact in the world to make it more healthy? We call it the Vitality Lab. And then with the military, how do we help soldiers and their families connect and be supportive in ways that they're not, such that we have, for example, suicide rates that are really horrific for a country as wealthy as we are? And then for philanthropists, how do we bring people together around who want to pull their resources, make a big impact for more than one generation? Notice all of those groups are not worried about revenue, logons, or posts. They actually have a group of people that they know if we can connect them better, if there's more trust, if there's more communication, if there's more envisioning, we're going to create something that doesn't yet exist that we want. And there's no accident in that because yeah. I'm not working with people who are in exploitation. And quite frankly, it makes me hard to sell to most of the market because yeah. they're looking for a quick fix. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people offering quick fixes. Uh, we don't, but we'll engage in the deep conversation that says, if these people are really important to you, and if you know you need a better, more powerful future than the one you've got, we certainly can talk about the very old principles that if you use them are going to bring people together as they have for millennia. Yeah. And it sounds like there's this great power in being able to say, here's who we are. Here's who I am. But like really clearly, here's who I'm not. And here's what I don't do. And it sounds like with that, Charles, and I know you, you have to say no to people all of the time when they're asking you to do something that isn't part of who you are and, and, and what it is that you do, right? I turn down a lot of attention where people just want my time. Uh, the way they phrase it is, hey, I love what you do. Let's connect. And I think I'm like you, Jason. We are so driven and actually growing a more healthy conversation in the worlds that we're in. We don't have the time to be in side conversations just because. Like, it's just math, right? There's only so many days and so many hours <laughs> and it's math. So if that's what you mean by turning down, yes. So... Charles, what, what are three words that people would use to describe you? Uh, I want to guess, Jason, and you tell me if you think I'm right. <laughs> First, I think people are smart. I've been working on that. And if I wasn't yeah. smart, I think they wouldn't trust me to have insight. I get the word deep a lot. Ooh. And the reason I say that, I, I get that a lot. And I think it's because I very rarely believe the problem at hand or the assessment, the quick assessment is the real one. There are usually layers there. And I'm... Usually right. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Oh, I'm right that there's more there. Right. And then the third one is, and this also comes up brave. Uh, and of course, you know, I was a labor organizer and I worked on human rights in sub-Saharan Africa. And then right now in this work that I'm doing now, I think the bravery is I'm willing to, I'm unwilling to tell people what they want to hear. It's important that if I'm going to use my life this way, that I'm saying what people need to hear. Yeah. Now I need to say it in a way they can hear it, which might mean coming up with the right language. It might mean framing it in a way that it can fit in their world. Absolutely. So smart, deep, brave. Have those always really been terms that people use to describe you or or have you evolved and honed over the years? Heck no. It, it's taken me several decades to mature out of all of the solipsism and superficiality and distraction and nervousness. And I, I can go on for a long time that I just had to confront and grow out of. Studying mystical traditions as I have, one of the things we notice is there's a patterns of maturation. And one of those maturations, a friend of mine calls it uh, adult 1.0, is the place in our lives where we're trying to prove our identity, or at least said differently, that time in our lives we're trying to establish our identity and trying to prove our worth. We think we're doing that for other people. Later, we discover we were always doing that for ourselves. Yeah. And I definitely went through that for more than 10 years. So Charles, how do you, how do you walk that tightrope, right? How do you balance being sort of the best authentic you that's about inspiring people and changing the world and then still marketing yourself with all of those credentials that people are looking for? Uh, Poorly is the answer, Jason. (laughs) In fact, I was just going over my profile recently because I was invited. I, I had to provide it to somebody and I was kind of, in all honesty, there's a little bit of nausea reading my profile just because of how forward it is celebrating these other brands, these international brands saying, well, gee, since they listen to me, you should too. Yeah. And a lot of what those brands do, I don't agree with. And I don't think it's healthy. Uh, I don't think the people that I was working with are bad people. In fact, the reason talking to me is they want something more and different and richer. Yeah. But, they want to be better, uh, but I don't, think everything I do is worth celebrating. And yet I put those brands in my profile because that signals, oh, he's listened to it at an international level. Yeah. And so am I doing a good job? Well, I'm doing what I think the world needs to hear from me. And when there's a better way, I would rather do that. Um, and then how do I then be authentic about that? I think it's like in this conversation, I'll, you know, I'll be straight. It's important that I say what needs to be said, not what they want me to say. And that I'm honest that not only am I imperfect, I'm really working to figure out how to be helpful in this time. I think our era is so broken, Jason, that I'm genuinely concerned that we're going to experience something that in the history books they'll call a revolution. So that brings a lot of humility to my work. Uh, If you hire me to speak or work with you, or you invite me to speak as you have, I do not come in the room saying, oh, good, you've got a problem and I have the tools and when you use tools, you're going to be done. The humility is, look, we're in a show that is legit dangerous and might be cataclysmic within our lifetime. I have some wisdom I learned from people over a thousand years. Let's start applying it to see if we can move towards something away from what I'm assuming is going to happen in our lifetime. And then I don't, you know, no, I'm no longer saying, look, I'm the best and and you should listen to me because I'm working with the best. Absolutely. 
So we just have a couple of minutes. So I have some, some quick and uh, fun questions for you. What is a brand that you love? What's a brand that you respect that you can't live without? My two favorite brands are Patagonia and the New York Times. Here's why. First of all, I know people in both brands and I know that they're deeply internally driven. That they're doing, they're there doing what they're doing because they think what they're doing is important. And in both cases, the people there, in many cases, the people inside those brands, they aspire to be the best at what they do in the world. Mm. Not necessarily in their market, not necessarily in their city, in the world. But both New York Times and Patagonia, they hope the world is better when they're successful. And then when they find out that they may be failing at that, there is this effort to correct on that. And you know, when I leave this planet and I look back at my life and the people I care about look back on it, I, what I hope they recognize is whatever else is true, Charles tried to be as good at it as he could in his lifetime. And he was trying in that effort to leave this planet better because he was successful. And we'll see if I make any headway. Ah, I think you're making some headway. If you were a type of car, Charles, what type of car would you be? So I'm going to go with, uh, I have a 2004 Mazda Miata. Ooh. I'm going to say that again. I have a 2004 Mazda Speed Miata. I'm just going to go with that. It's small. Yeah. It is not the most powerful car in my block. It's not even the most powerful car, quite frankly, in my driveway. It's based on old technology. It's small. It's uh, not worth that much in trade value. But damn, it does a good job at what it does. And it's a ton of fun while it does it. Ah, love that. And finally, Charles, for all of our listeners, what's the best career advice you'd like to pass on to them? You are not behind. Uh, I haven't ever met somebody younger than me who was building their career who wasn't convinced they were already behind. So... In 2005, I was a waiter. People were laughing in my face. And in 2007, I was honest to God, uh, co-instructing a course on social entrepreneurship at Yale. And there was no way when I was that 30-year-old getting laughed in my face that I knew that in a scant two years, I'd be guest lecturing at a top three university in the world on how to change the damn world. I was on the journey. And there was no way for me or those people laughing in my face to know how far along I was and whether I was on schedule. So we got to do the things it takes to get where we want to go. We have to put the work in and it may take longer than we want. Let me say it differently. It's going to take longer than we want it to. (laughs) And the work takes as long as it takes. And you might be waiting tables at 30, having people laugh in your face. And that doesn't mean you're behind. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. It isn't working. Yeah. Well, Charles, thank you for being smart. Thank you for being deep. And most importantly, thank you for being brave and telling us what we all needed to hear today. It was great connecting with you. It's such a delight to be here, Jason, and to be invited to share your time. Absolutely. And we'll be back in just a few moments with my final thoughts. Are you tired of not being recognized for your work? Are you ready to rise above the rest and accelerate to the next level? The Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program will help you take control of your career, develop your own unique brand, and catapult you to a whole new level of success. You are a top performer, and the Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program is what you need to get you there. Visit leadwithyourbrand.com to learn how. 
Wow, what an awesome conversation with Charles Vogel. You know, he had so many great tips, but one of the things that really resonated with me about Charles is that important element of having a mission and a purpose. You know, in Lead With Your Brand, we talk all about your brand foundation. And part of that brand foundation is really thinking about your purpose in terms of what it is that you believe and what is your position? Why would people turn to you? And I love that Charles talked all about his mission to change the world and to use ancient philosophy to really solve some of the world's greatest challenges. Because for Charles, when he can identify that, he can make sure that he is always on brand, even if that means that sometimes he turns down work because it's not consistent with his mission. So think for yourself, what is your mission? What is that one unifying statement that says why people need to come to you and what your core belief is so that you can make sure that all of your activities, all of your work, and how you show up every single day is truly on brand for you? Well, that's our show for today. I hope you had an amazing time. If you did, make sure to hit that follow button on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast so that you can get a brand new episode every single Tuesday. And make sure to follow me on social media. I'm at Jason Patria on all platforms. And check me out on LinkedIn, where I share tons of tips and tricks of how you can lead with your brand to your next career breakthrough. And remember... In your career, never, never being a boring old commodity like coffee, make sure you are a super premium brand like Starbucks. You've been listening to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores and uncovers exceptional career success stories and inspiring personal brand journeys with your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at leadwithyourbrand.com.